and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 294 and my conversation with Jacksonville State University in Alabama, percussion professor Matthew Jordan. We'll get back to him shortly. I just returned from Memphis and the National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy in 2022, which was held at the University of Memphis. The conference was led and hosted by three previous podcast guests, Texas Tech percussion professor Lisa Rogers, Delta State University percussion professor Josh Armstrong, and the host, University of Memphis's Bill Schultes. I'll talk more about the conference in this week's rave, but I'll mention that on my end, I was excited to get to participate in a mentoring session be a respondent and introducer for two research papers, and get to perform an original marimba chorale at the conference, for which I got a number of great comments about. So I'm excited about that. Again, more on the conference following this week's interview with our guest, Matthew Jordan. I'm meeting Matthew for the first time in this conversation, and I was excited to be getting to interview him. Matthew's been teaching at Jacksonville State, for a few years now, and has been pushing that program to new heights. He's been, perhaps, most active in his work with many DCI and Band of America drumlines throughout the country, along with his current work on the music and audio side for the Blue Coats Drum and Bugle Corps. He's at a teaching stop at his undergrad alma mater of Middle Tennessee State, and had a long stint working in the percussion industry for Pearl Adams. We'll get to all of that and more in our interview, so let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on May 19th, 2022, and it begins right now. So, Matt, give me a summation of your percussion activities as they are at this point. Currently, I'm the assistant professor of percussion at Jacksonville State University in Jacksonville, Alabama. Uh, on top of that, I'm very involved with the marching arts. Uh, so I am the music coordinator and electronics designer for the Blue Coats Drum and Bugle Corps. Uh, I'm the front ensemble arranger for Music City Mystique in WGI. Um, and then I'm also involved with ar- arranging for a number of other groups, including the Marine Drum and Bugle Corps, um, a bunch of high schools, BOA finalists, and things like that. Um, in addition, I, I, I'm pretty active as a freelance percussionist. Uh, pretty commonly play with the Nashville Symphony, Huntsville Symphony, Alabama Symphony, and Tuscaloosa Symphony. Uh, So yeah, I try to stay active in kind of all the different fields. Um, And I'm also very involved with PAS um, as a member of the Board of Advisors um, and the Music Technology Committee. How long have you been at Jacksonville State? I just finished up my third year. Um, So I was actually a visiting uh, assistant professor of percussion uh, from, I guess that was 2019 to 2020, uh, kind of getting into pandemic. Um, And then I auditioned for um, and and was awarded the the full-time tenure track position moving forward. So yeah, just finished up my third year uh, going into into our fourth year right now. Tell me about getting the position and where you were right before then. I had an interesting kind of path uh, into the the professorship, I'll say. Uh, So I was finishing my doctorate at Florida State back in 2012, I guess 2010 through 2012. Um, And kind of out of that, I ended up getting a full-time position at Middle Tennessee State University as a instructor of percussion and assistant director of bands. So essentially doing athletic band things. Uh, So that that actually kind of worked out in my favor where it was a a one-year position they created pretty much just for me 
me, um, that was in the middle of all the FAMU hazing things where, where they had students that died during band camp because of hazing. Um, and at the time, MTSC only had a single band director. Um, so, so I was going to go up and teach adjunct for them. And it just kind of worked out where I was going to be teaching adjunct. That it was too late for them to do a search for a band director. So they just added the band part onto my adjunct load and made me full-time temporary. Um, and then moving forward, it wasn't going to be that position. It was going to be a, a full-time band and music ed person. Um, so kind of in the middle of that, I ended up getting the job uh, at Pearl and Adams being an artist relations representative. Um, and kind of, um, I think my official title was concert percussion marketing manager. I didn't really do much marketing. It was a little bit more artist relations, product development, um, product support uh, for all the concert percussion side of things. Uh, but I was able to continue teaching adjunct at MTSU uh, through that. So I, I, I was at Pearl for six years, uh, continued to teach at MTSU for those six years. Uh, so yeah, by the time that the um, the job opened up at JSU, um, I, I was actually already pretty close with Clint Gillespie, uh, who's the other full-time percussion teacher here at JSU, uh, from my time when I was teaching Spirit of Atlanta, uh, Drum and Bugle Corps. So when that opened up, um, he gave me a call. He had found out that I had just finished my doctorate in 2018, uh, gave me a call and asked if I was interested in um, applying for the, the visiting position that would what would turn into the full-time position. Um, so yeah, so it, it worked out well, and JSU is a, you know, a fabulous school for percussion, um, so it was a great kind of jumping in point to the, the full-time uh, tenure track job. The timeline indicates that you, you finished your coursework gap. Yep. And yep. doctorate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was there, what, that's because the, the, the amount of years you just stated, that's uh, usually like the last point of when they'll still allow you to do it. Right. <laughs> Yep. yep. And uh, so, yeah, so for, for me, um, one, one of the reasons that I ended up thinking I wasn't going to finish, uh, yeah, I was done with coursework, but I still had a whole year of dissertation hours mm -hmm. and recitals and all that stuff. So it was like 24 credit hours worth that were still left for me. Um, even though I didn't have to do anything in Tallahassee really. And I think the big thing for me was at the time I was working at a industry job that didn't really care if I had a doctorate. Sure. Um, and at that point I was going to be out of state. So it was going to cost me something like $27,000, $28,000 to finish this degree that at the time, nobody really cared that I had. Um, so for me, it was one of those, like, you know what, like if, if I decide I need this, great. Um, I'll go back and finish it. But if not, uh, cause I was actually, I was purposefully smart about this FSU, every, every school has different rules on this, but, um, FSU's rules in terms of the time limitation is once you pass your comprehensive exams, you have, I think it's five years, uh, to finish. So I purposely hadn't taken my comprehensive exams yet. Um, and kind of waited on that. So really when I kind of came back, I guess that was, um, I guess it would have been fall of 2017 was when I was when I started again. Uh, Parks kind of, you know, like, like most teachers have to do, they kind of have to poke and prod their DMA students that are EBD pretty much. Um, and he asked me like, so are you going to finish this or what? And I kind of told him no. Um, and so he ended up kind of asking like, why are you not going to finish this? And I told him well, the money side. So he was able to work out getting me in-state tuition and some grants and things like that. So it, that's really the reason I finished. I actually wasn't trying to jump into the full-time teaching thing. I was still pretty happy at Pearl. Um, but uh, once I got a scholarship, essentially to make it more reasonable to finish, I wanted to finish it. I mean, I wasn't trying to leave it out in the open, um, but I just wasn't going to spend $28,000 to do it. <laughs> and uh, so, so yeah, it was, I think, yeah, about that six, seven years um, before I ended up finishing my, uh, my my treatise. Um, and uh, again, the, I had to do three recitals in my comps, uh, and a treatise and the defense all in uh, those two semesters. So it was, uh, it was pretty busy. <laughs> 
Yes, yes, it was. Um, what was the difference, if any, between the getting the job the first time around at Jacksonville State and then the second time? That was a pretty big difference in process. Um, since the visiting kind of title doesn't require them to do a national search, um, there wasn't an audition really. It, I mean, there were there was an interview, and I know they interviewed a few people, um, but it was a little bit more hand selected. They found a few people who were interested, and they kind of uh, interviewed us because it was pretty late. I think it was May. You know, it was mid to late May when they found out that Andrew Ling, who's now at the University of Alabama, um, was leaving. Um, so so. Yeah, it was a pretty quick process for that. Um, I had to send some videos and do a do a little Zoom interview, but that was really the end of the process for the, for the visiting thing. Uh, for the actual uh, assistant professor position, um, I did have to do quite a bit more. Um, so I had to send in my resume and my uh, my CV and um, a, a bunch of videos of playing. Uh, go through a, a phone round of interviews, which was actually on Zoom. Zoom interviews. Uh, then after that, they kind of got it down to the finals finalists, which I think they brought it down to two finalists. Um, so we had to do on-campus interviews, you know, all, all the normal, all the normal um, kind of interview things where you're meeting with the dean, meeting with the department head, meeting with students. Um, we didn't have a teaching component uh, in it, actually, because uh, both, both of the finalists actually had teaching videos they were kind of happy with. Uh, so they decided to just do the recital within that, like a 30-minute recital. So yeah, so that was the, that was the process and ended up getting selected after that. Great. Now, did they have they allowed you to count year one or no? So actually, I, I was really good about this when I was having my interview with the dean. Um, they actually even counted my year at MTSU back in 2012, 2013. Oh, wow. um, yeah, so I actually had two prior years of service coming in to the, to the actual tenure track job. Um, yeah, that was a big thing for me is that if I was going to take that job and move from Nashville, like I needed some, you know, credit for the things I had done and for the, the visiting role within that. So yeah, at this point, so that really means I have four years. So I have one more year and then I can go up for tenure within that. So. Wow. No, it's great. Was that suggested by parks to, to negotiate that? Uh, no, no, they, uh, actually the Dean was really good about asking about, you know, she, she saw those things on my resume and, uh, and asked me if I wanted. And, and the cool thing about what JSU does is that they, they, they'll give you credit for it if it's deserving of credit. Um, but then like, if you like, you know, for me, I'm fine. I'm doing a lot of outside things, but for, for somebody who might not have the tenure level of, uh, resume yet, um, you can actually take away those years of credit one at a time. Um, so, so if you're not sure you're going to get tenure, you can actually remove those years and get more time to build up to that. Um, if you want that for me, again, I'm doing plenty outside, so, um, I'm yeah. not worried about that. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the department, the studios and you kind of what you, you oversee in your job. Yeah. So JSU is a very uh, music ed focused school uh, for both vocal and for instrumental. Uh, we don't really have a string program. A lot of that comes down to Alabama not having generally any string programs in the schools or very, very few. Um, so we don't really have a string program. It's more band focused and uh, choir focused school uh, within that. Uh, so percussion studio is rather large. We have, I, I believe this fall, we had 42 students, 43 students in the, in the studio. Um, we don't have any uh, a, a graduate students. So it is all undergrad. Uh, we do technically have a graduate music ed students, but they, they just kind of 
barely touch the percussion world. They're, you know, they, they're off doing their conducting and all that stuff. They might be able to play in percussion ensemble or take a lesson, but they're, they're not really in the percussion studio um, within that. And uh, the, what's nice about not having grad students is that means to have that big of a studio, we have to have a lot of faculty. So we currently have five faculty members. Uh, so I'm uh, essentially the coordinator of all the concert percussion activities. So I deal with your class percussion, AKA percussion methods. Uh, we have two percussion ensembles. Um, we have our studio class that I run and then applied lessons. Um, and then Clint Gillespie. Uh, so he's, he's great. Uh, he's essentially in charge of the drumline side of things, but also lessons. Um, so, so Clint runs everything marching percussion related. He's actually technically a uh, assistant or associate director of bands. Um, so, so he's technically a band director, but does just as much with percussion as I do. Um, and so he, me and him kind of split our, our lesson load pretty equally. Uh, within that. And then we also have, because we have so many students, we have overload on top of that. Uh, Dr. Brant Blackard, who just finished his doctorate from Eastman. Uh, so he he teaches with us. He teaches about as many lessons as I do, just doesn't do all the other things as well. Um, Tony, Dr. Tony McCutcheon, uh, who taught at University of Georgia for 30 years. Uh, so he still teaches. He was actually our department head. So funny enough, he was in my position. Uh, he kind of retired from Georgia, came over, was in my position um, as assistant professor or as professor of percussion. Uh, came over, did that for about five years, got promoted to department head. He was department head for about five years uh, where he was teaching the steel band. Uh, he was uh, teaching, you know, jazz drum set, jazz vibes while he was department head. Uh, and then after, after he finally just retired from the department head role. And now he's back to being just pure adjunct uh, teaching same, same deal, steel band drum set and vibes uh, within there. Uh, we just brought on an, uh, a new teacher, uh, Imra Kotan, who's an Atlanta based world percussionist. Uh, so teaches some uh, kind of more contemporary uh, world drum set and hand percussion and things like that. So, so yeah, having, having that, um, you know, variety of students and the number of students allows us to have that many faculty, which is awesome. Um, the other thing about our students is that we have a very wide, um, variety of skill sets that come in to us. Um, you know, one of the interesting things with where we are kind of in between Birmingham and Atlanta is that we are in the middle of rural Alabama, but we're also really close to these big metropolitan areas. Uh, so we'll have students come in that like might have really great snare chops, but have never played keyboards before. Uh, and then we, we also have students coming in who have made it into top orchestral festivals and March drum corps and did things like this. So it really we have a, a pretty wide cross section of all of the uh, different skill levels that we get to us. I think the biggest thing that we, we go off of for auditions is do we feel like the student has potential, um, you know, for growth and potential to do what they need to do. Um, and everybody has a different level of that, I guess is the, the way to describe that. Do you teach the like methods and, and what other kinds of percussion courses are, are offered? Yeah. So as of right now, we are primarily music ed. Um, so we, we don't have, we actually just got a performance degree, but we don't have any students that are actually doing that yet. Um, so really at right now, we really just have class percussion, percussion ensembles, um, studio class and lessons uh, within that. So we don't have any percussion literature um, or percussion pedagogy or those kind of things, because that would be more, more normally towards the performance degree. Technically, we We'll offer those whenever we end up having a performance major or so. Uh, we'll end up having to teach those. But at, at the current time, we're not teaching any of those extra type of courses. Uh, one of the things that we do kind of as part of a lot of students take secondary lessons on some extra things. So it might be music technology, arranging, um, the hand percussion. So things that might be in a lot of other places like a separate class, we just do as a private lesson um, if those students are interested in those things. Is there a marching band there? 
yes, there's a gigantic marching band. Um, and, you know, and, and not to brag at all, but I, I think our marching band is definitely one of the top uh, top marching bands in the country by a, by a long shot. Um, they are absolutely fabulous. They actually just won the Sudler, uh, the Sudler Trophy, a uh, really, really big uh, uh, kind of honor in college marching bands. Uh, so they're actually getting presented with that this fall. Um, yeah, there's 550 people in the marching band. Wow. Um, it's absolutely gigantic. Um, you know, the drum line is, uh, I think this, this fall going to be like 11 snares, uh, six tenors, four, what we call flubs, seven basses, 19 cymbals, eight marimbas in the pit, eight vibes, drum set, two, uh, two glocks, xylophone, two cents. So it's gigantic. And it's, it's worth, it's worth checking out a video of uh, the JSU marching Southerners is what they call themselves. So, um, but yeah, they're absolutely fantastic. They played at BOA. I guess that was two years ago. Um, so they, they're, they're very nationally and internationally renowned for their marching band. I think they're going to France actually to perform on the D-Day celebration um, or D-Day Memorial um, in I think 2024, something like that. So. Are you involved in that or no? Uh, very lightly. So actually, um, I, I help with auditions. Um, so just with my expertise and background, the marching arts with, especially the front ensemble side of things, um, I end up helping with auditions just to kind of get people placed in the right spots, uh, and everything. Um, but past that, not really. Um, and then I, I also do some electronic design for them. They, they, they finally wrote me into that, um, convinced me to do that, but I, but it doesn't require me to really be a part of rehearsal. That's a, that's a really big thing for me is like, I, I do enough marching percussion on my, <laughs> on my other side of my life that kind of at school, I, I know that if I got into involved in that, I would stay involved in that. And I want to try to keep a little bit of a boundary and be the, uh, you know, I, my training and my background and everything kind of coming up, like my resume shows a lot of marching percussion things, but that's not really what my plan was to do as a career. That's not what my training was. Um, and so it just become one of those things that people kind of know me for. So I, I I'm, I do my best to try to separate it when I can and uh, make it more about the concert percussion side. Yeah, I, I got you. Um, on that. Well, first of all, when you have five fifty, uh, I was like, all right, what are the shapes? It's like, <laughs> you'd be surprised you'd be so, so, uh, so randy nelson our our, uh, our drill writer uh is, yeah. is a magician like when you watch some of that drill like how are, how are they moving around that much mm-hmm. um with another the, the one other magical piece of advice or a uh, uh, thing that they do is uh, they actually have a longer show than a halftime will allow for yeah. um so one of the things that randy does which is brilliant is that um the opening set and the closing set of pretty much every movement is the same and so what that means is that they can, they can, uh, move movements around within the show. So like when they're doing a normal, like halftime show, they might do one, two, four, and then they'll do the next week and it'll be two, three, four. And mm-hmm. so it always feels a little different and fresh because they all move these movements around, uh, within there. And also it means that they don't have to play the whole show, uh, when they're at up kind of halftime. But like one of the crazy things is that like JSU is so well known for the marching band. People come to the games to watch the band. Mm-hmm. So like after, after the game finishes, they'll do their full show. Yeah. after the game and people always stick around for it. You have a whole front side, you know, seating that's full after each game. It's really pretty amazing. Got it. Well, I was thinking it's like the, cause the halftime show is probably, I would guess like seven, eight minutes. I mean, that's what it is here approximately. And then they, they're so, yep. and then their, their actual show is, is a typical uh, DCI 12, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 
of the things that you do on the DCI side and the WGI side, what was the what was the entry point in terms of your um, in terms of your teaching side of it and writing? Yeah, so I can I can give you a brief little overview of my my drum corps background. Really, the 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 seed of the idea uh, was that I was writing um, a lot and kind of working a lot uh, with Shane Gwaltney, uh, so who's the battery arranger for Music City Mystique. Um, I was kind of writing uh, like little high school, like A class WGI shows and you know kind of mid level marching band shows, like nothing super fancy. Um, and so we continued to kind of keep writing together in, in like that 05, 06, 07 range. Also got to know a guy named Sean Womack, one of my one of my best friends now. Uh, Sean uh, was teaching adjunct at JSU and just ended up having to get a high school job in Atlanta. So he has a great a great high school job. So he's not teaching at JSU anymore. Um, but we ended up kind of hanging out at a friend's wedding, um, and I had played timpani for the Cavaliers. That was my kind of entry into the marching arts. Myself was playing timpani for Cavaliers. Sean was mentioning that he was the front ensemble caption head for Spirit of Atlanta um, and that his timpanist was not very good. Um, so he kind of invited me to come out and hang with them for a weekend during pre-tour, which was at JSU, because um, that's back when they were Spirit of JSU. They were actually associated. It's that, and funny enough, our course catalog for JSU still has drum corps listed in it. Um, we're probably the only school that actually has drum corps listed as a course um, in our in our course catalog. Uh, kind of hanging out with them for that weekend at JSU, um, meeting um, Brent Wills and Sean Womack, who uh, who were the the, the techs that summer. Um, that that's kind of all I did that year. Fast forward to the fall, uh, they ended up calling me. Uh, Sean called me and said, "Hey, it was fun to hang, fun to teach with you. Would you be interested in doing more? You know, and actually kind of coming in and teaching for real." So I ended up teaching um, 2008, 2009, and 2010. Um, and in 2008, that's actually when Shane Gwaltney, as I mentioned before, uh, was hired uh, as the battery arranger for Spirit. So kind of got to know Shane even more through that process professionally. Um, we started writing more and more and more together um, to the point where his main writing partner for, for Music City Mystique at that time was Eric Johnson. Uh, you might know as the president of Innovative Percussion. Uh, so Eric at that time was writing for Cavaliers. Um, so when Paul and Sandy Rennick left Phantom Regiment after the 2010 season to go to Vanguard, um, Shane ended up getting hired for the Phantom Regiment uh, arranging position for the battery. Um, and considering his primary arranging partner was Mark was writing for Cavaliers and wasn't particularly interested in, in leaving or, or changing since Eric had been at Cavaliers for, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, so I, I ended up being Shane's other primary writing partner. So I ended up getting the job arranging for Phantom Regiment. So I, I wrote for Phantom Regiment from 2011 to 2014, um, uh, along with a good friend, Tony Nunez, who was doing the electronic design uh, at Phantom. And then he ended up getting hired at Carolina Crown in 2015 to be the front ensemble ranger. And I kind of came in and helped it was like a team, uh, a team arranging type of thing. I ended up writing like a third of the show uh, in 2015 for for Carolina Crown, um, and then uh, took 2016 off. Did a little consulting for for a few groups, um, but not not anything serious. Went in a weekend, I think, to Mandarins. Went in a weekend to Boston, um, just to help with some, some audio things. Um, and then 2017 ended up starting uh, on the tech staff um, as a music ensemble coordinator uh, for the Bluecoats the year after they won. Uh, good friend of mine, Ryan Kilgore is the primary music ensemble coordinator. Um, and, and he just needed some time off. So it was really somebody who could kind of really be a relief pitcher for him. Uh, so I came in for three weeks, did that, fell in love with the organization, um, fell in love with, with the, with the group and everyone. Um, 
so 2018 was doing that actually ended up writing for spirit of Atlanta, uh, for the front ensemble as well on top of that. So I was doing two groups in 2018. Um, and then in, after 2018, uh, Vince Oliver, the electronics designer for blue coats up to that point, uh, ended up deciding to retire. Um, and so I ended up taking over as the electronics designer and music coordinator for the blue coats, uh, up to that point. So that's what I've, where I've been ever since, since 2019, uh, is at blue coats, but yeah, it's been a fun kind of evolution of being on the kind of ground floor, teaching the front ensemble, writing for the front ensemble and now kind of music coordinator in my current role at blue coats it's a, a fun little evolution are we in the time of year where it's are you like working all the time now for that as you're oh yeah oh yeah well because school for me ended about two weeks ago mm-hmm. um so at this point yeah it's kind of heavy uh heavy in logic making things work and kind of we're getting the last little uh eyes dotted t's crossed on all the scores um but between uh doug thrower our brass arranger tom rarick our percussion arranger uh just making sure that all the little things are ready for the members when they get there uh this friday that they're gonna have all the things they need uh to make things work um and all the things they're, they're gonna need to, you know and, and so really once their stuff gets more solidified that's when I can kind of jump in and actually make my magic happen on top of that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of heavy in logic files right now, kind of making good mock-ups enough for me to kind of add things on top of. And uh, we tend to, to do a lot more, uh, a lot of other groups that do a lot of design on the front end where they're going to, you know, they're going to spend a lot of time in logic, kind of making it perfect back in January, February. Uh, we like kind of doing it a little more on the fly. Um, so it's, it's a little bit more like we're hearing and seeing what's on the field. And then you're kind of writing in reaction to that. Um, so John Vanderkoff, our artistic director and our visual design. Um, so he actually does that with the drill too. So like he doesn't come in with drill already written. He literally every morning, uh, it might be evening. I'm, I'm not sure exactly where they're doing it now, but they have a staging block where he just gets the entire visual ensemble of the core. So, you know, brass battery guard, um, out, out there and just starts like messing around and like, just kind of finding what works. And, you know, like, well, what if y'all went from the side to that, that side and eight counts, or, you know, what if, what if the battery kind of stood on these platforms or what if, you know, and so it kind of turns into this little bit of a lab time. Um, and they kind of take pictures of all the things they messed around with. And then that night, John will go back and actually write drill based on what they experimented with. Um, and so they have a general idea what it is. He's really just plotting out the official, here's where your dot is now after the experiments. Uh, but yeah, it's a very cool process to kind of watch just to be a fly on the wall and, and watch how John and Jim, uh, our uh, choreographer kind of work with those type of things. So my job as kind of music coordinator is to make sure that as we're kind of watching John and Jim's process evolve, that our music side is working with that, you know, that, and then if there's any revisions needed, yeah, I can kind of help coordinate knowing when, when do we need to cut counts? When do we need to add counts? Is there something that's conflicting here? Um, and it's also nice having me as kind of a tiebreaker. There's, you know, I remember 2019 particularly uh, where we had like this tuba feature that was also a percussion feature. And there was co- constantly this kind of like, is it a tuba feature? or Is it a percussion feature? Is it a tuba feature? And so being able to be that neutral party, um, kind of helps. You said it's a percussion feature. Thank you. <laughs> right? I might, I might have, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, so it, it's, it's a, it's a fun job and I, you know, getting to work with a bunch of amazing people, uh, that entire organization is full of, uh, not only great musicians, great educators, but great people. And I think that's the reason that uh, the, the group is doing how they are is because they've just assembled this amazing team of people um, that works well together and that attracts great students. Yeah. As you get further into the season, is your does your role stay really active or is there a point where you either 
like what's the most what's the busiest time for you to, to kind of in this whole like yeah for, for for the for the audio audio side of things and electronic side of things um it is primarily in pre-tour um yeah. that's when we're getting the basis because like you know if you think about the electronic role like we think about electronics as just a thing you mm-hmm. know but really electronics kind of boils down to a bunch of different uh layers if you can kind of think of it layers of the onion um so we kind of think about synth patches you know so one of the basic things that i'm doing early is making sure that like the reinforcement of uh the type of timbres we're picking and the parts they're playing are suitable to kind of fill the ensemble out without getting in the way and there's that there's that hard balance because you want those two players we have two electronics performers um we want them to be incredibly supportive and we want them you to notice that they are there but we don't ever want them to override the other 163 people that are on the field um so that's like that's a that's a balancing act of finding that way to to keep them involved and keep them obvious without keeping them um where they're taking over um and so i think we we tend to do a good job of that because a lot of our electronic contribution comes from more live processing we do we do a lot of things with like taking a timbre that somebody's already playing and then morphing that enough to be cool so because what that is for us is that like they're still just as much creditable from an acoustic side of things it's not just this electronic instrument playing a solo you know it's still a trombone feature that happens to have some effects on it you know it's still you know a snare a snare drum like drumline uh, you know, kind of feature that happens to have some vocoding on it. Like we're trying to add these layers on top of it rather than replace things with those layers. So, yeah, so we have the kind of synth element that will be there. Um, I like to think about like the Foley layer, you know, when we kind of think about like if there's some sound effects that you need, you know, if you have a car driving by, do you have like, you know, do you have the sound of an engine and you kind of that kind of tire, you know, do you have those kind of things that are uh, illustrative of what's actually happening? Um, Then you have your kind of environmental uh, sound effects. That's going to be kind of more like your drones and things like that. Uh, You have, you know, singing. So, So if there's any singing elements that are happening throughout, and also any voiceover or narrative elements that are happening. Um, so really f- for us, it's like between all of those different layers, we tend to start at the bottom and kind of work our way up. Um, and so you're you're typically filling in the most important things first. And then throughout the season, like even though we're going to get the bulk of the show done through pre-tour, um, we absolutely will continue to evolve and add layers and add like all this depth. And the other, other side to it, I, if 2019 is a good example, um, we also use scratch tracks a lot. So that what that means is like, we're we're recording a early version just to use to develop the show and then as we get more comfortable with what that is and what we need out of it um we will then kind of twist that and re-record it with a professional you know voice actor or actress um and they will be able to kind of then put that in there um like a, a good example there was some of the um Indian conical stuff that was in the show in 2019 uh, that I had just recorded myself. I had just kind of layered myself, you know, singing it four or five different ways. And it sounded fine. Like, you know, if you weren't really listening for it, you wouldn't notice, you know, it was me. Um, but then our, 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 our quad tech Suvan, um, he's, he is Indian and it, it made it a little bit more authentic to have him do it. So I kind of recorded him doing all those things um, and kind of ended up layering a few front ensemble members on top of that, just to make it sound a little bit more believable. Um, um, even if it sounded good, it didn't necessarily sound believable, at least, at least to my ears, but since I wrote it. Um, and I think that's usually the thing is, uh, even by finals, there's still my voice in the show somewhere, either singing or humming or doing something. Uh, I try to uh, eliminate as many of them as possible, but sometimes John Vanderkop doesn't let me take them out because he likes them. So <laughs> I hear you. So. During the year, do you have responsibilities 
to to that organization or is it primarily a summer thing yeah well it is it is primarily summer um overall in terms of the bulk of the time uh yeah. for sure um we but we we do like it's a year round job for us. Um, so we literally finish finals, um, in mid August. Uh, usually it's, um, Labor Day weekend. We, we meet, uh, usually in, you know, we, we've done New York, we've done Nashville. Like we all just kind of fly somewhere. It's a little bit of a celebration at the end of the season, but it's also a chance for us to start brainstorming and talking about the next year's production, uh, within that. So, yeah, just that's where we kind of start developing that show. We usually have in-person design meetings about once every two months. Um, so yeah, usually around early September, usually around late October, usually kind of, usually there's a December camp with blue coats where they actually do auditions. So we'll go to that, but we'll, we'll kind of meet on our own, you know, uh, separate from the camp. And then we'll come in and be able to see how the group is on Sunday, uh, within that. Um, we usually meet around kind of that February, March range. Then we just actually just met, um, uh, up in Canton for the camp, I guess that was last week. So, so yeah, so overall we do stay involved and there's also, we do weekly design meetings, um, weekly uh, Tuesdays at, at, uh, seven 30, you know, for an hour where we just kind of, with that constant check-in constant evolution, constant development. And it gives everyone a kind of a, a target to hit with stuff they're working on. You know, if, you know, if Doug's working on an arrangement, you know, that's a good chance, like, okay, well, I got to get this done before Tuesday so I can play it for everybody. Um, so a lot of it is just kind of holding us accountable to, we have these Tuesdays that we talk that we have to have progress. We have to have things, um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of the, the yearly, the yearly part of that. Um, so yeah, we usually we're writing, um, like usually by the time we hit kind of March, April, about three quarters of the show's done. Um, and then by the time we hit like right about now, like we, we still have some things to button up, but like overall our show is structurally complete. Um, even if the layers aren't all there, the st structurally we understand what the show is now. Got it. Well, you know, if you were uh, taking a cue from Nick Saban, you would that night after finals, you would have a three hour meeting about next year, you know, you yeah. wouldn't take any time to. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's pretty much, I mean, like, you know, pretty much what we do. I mean, you know, <laughs> if we, if we all were full-time employees of the blue coats, I'm sure we could do it a little faster, but yeah. <laughs> you know, we all, you know, we all, uh, a lot of us have full-time jobs and things like that. So we end up taking off for finals week and then we have to wait a few weeks before we take vacation again. <laughs> So that's why we do it over, uh, over, uh, uh, Labor Day weekend is so we can have an extended weekend, like four days without having to take any time off of work. Um, gotcha. so yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Now, how much, uh, of the freelance stuff are, do you still get to do? It's been harder and harder to play with Nashville for obvious reasons, you know, living three and a half hours away in Alabama. Um, they are much more full-time orchestra. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's been hard to play with them since, since moving down. But when I was living in Nashville, I mean, it was probably two to three concert cycles a month. I mean, I was playing a bunch in Nashville. Um, so when I, when I moved down here, um, it actually picked up pretty surprisingly faster than I was expecting. Uh, ended up playing, um, uh, you know, a few, a few concert series with Huntsville before COVID. Um, same with Tuscaloosa. I only played, I think once with Alabama before COVID. Um, and then obviously everybody kind of shut down for, you know, so that was kind of a bummer is like, I, you know, moved down, 
it's like, oh, I don't get to play at all right now. Uh, once, once kind of COVID hit. Um, so yeah, really this, this year, this, this academic year is when fun, everything started to come back into playing with all those groups again, a few times. And, um, yeah, it was really, really fun. Um, because uh, there's a lot more regional orchestras, weirdly enough, down here in Alabama than there are up in Tennessee, really Tennessee. Um, you know, you have Nashville symphony and that's pretty much about it in that area. You know, um, th- I think there's Chattanooga symphony, but that's two hours away. That's, that's a good bit farther away. Uh, within that. So yeah, well, it's, uh, it's same thing. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and so, yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's been really fun to play with those groups. Um, a lot of great percussionists involved, um, all from different areas. Like one, one of the things that's cool about Huntsville is that, uh, Sean Rittenauer, the principal, uh, he's actually a kind of percussionist up on Broadway in New York. Um, so a lot of times he'll like do a good job of kind of picking and choosing per concert series. Like, so he'll bring in friends from New York, he'll bring in friends from Florida, you know, he'll bring in local people. Like it, it really is a good mix of people he brings in and it's not just, um, ju- not just all locals to the Huntsville area. Um, so it, you end up getting to play with a really great section. Um, Alabama is really, really great. Um, and then Tuscaloosa is a lot of the faculty from kind of the universities in the area. So yeah, it's, it's just fun. They're all very different, uh, type of experiences, um, but all in a great way. All right. Well, let's back up. So Matt, where'd you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, so I actually was born and raised here. One of the few people right now, Nashville is exploding and, you know, people who are born and raised here are, uh, uh, very, very few and far between. Uh, so I grew up actually in a family of musicians, not immediate family. Uh, but my grandfather was the flute player for the Nashville symphony. Uh, it was, it was a flute, a flutist, a flautist, uh, for the Nashville symphony. Uh, and my uncle's actually currently the tuba player for the Nashville symphony. Uh, so, so I actually have a very, very deep, uh, lineage with the Nashville symphony, which is also really nice, uh, within that. Uh, so yeah, I went to school, uh, at a, at a academic magnet high school. And the reason I bring that up is that we did not have a marching band or a football team. Um, so funny enough with all my drum corps involvement, that was coming out of a high school with none of that. Uh, so one of the reasons that I kind of got involved with some of the external things, especially music city mystique, um, I ended up, uh, kind of, uh, getting into that because I, they were actually advertising at like a little summer music thing called dancing in the district that Nashville would do. Uh, they were doing bucket drumming and they were handing out flyers for this group called music city mystique. So I was like, Oh, that sounds like fun. And I don't get to do anything like that at school. So I ended up auditioning for them. I was a member of Mystique for six years. Uh, so when I, when I was 14 through when I was, I guess, 20 uh, within that. I ended up going to, uh, when I, actually, when I was in high school, I'll go back to that. When I was in high school, I uh, was doing Mystique. Um, uh, ended up being in the Nashville Youth Symphony as well. Uh, so just kind of, I, I liked doing all these external things. Um, and so I was kind of pretty active with all that. Did four years of Nashville Youth Symphony uh, within that. Ended up going to Middle Tennessee State University for my undergrad, starting with Lalo Davila. Um, Lalo was pretty much the only one there at the time. Andy Smith was teaching. It was actually a grad student my first year, I believe. And then he he was teaching adjunct um, within there. So Andy's also great. Uh, Teaches at University of Texas, El Paso now. Um, And so did MTSU. While I was going through my first few years of college, ended up marching Cavaliers um, and and did that. So, yeah, I was very involved with that stuff. Um, One of the other things I did that I I neglected to mention um, is I actually 
actually went to Eastern Music Festival, so a, a music festival based in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, did that two years in high school. So my, after my sophomore and junior years of high school, I did that. Um, and then uh, I actually decided that I uh, was done with drum corps. Actually, only marched two years. I could have marched four. Um, so I actually uh, stopped marching drum corps after 04 and ended up going back to the Eastern Music Festival again uh, as a college student, uh, which was fun. Also spent some time doing like the Duff Timpani Seminar uh, 2006. I ended up doing the, the Stevens Seminar. Uh, so I, I really was trying to do and, and as many well-rounded things as I could. I wasn't just focused on drum corps or just focused on orchestral or just focused on marimba. Like I really wanted to do all those things. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I got to where I was um, within that. After I uh, got, got near the end of my undergrad, ended up auditioning for the University of North Texas. Uh, I ended up having a teaching assistantship at North Texas. Um, and we ended up playing PASIC just by, by stroke of luck, ended up playing it at PASIC where I got to be a, be a vibe soloist for that, which was awesome. Um, and then as a result of that, ended up getting into Florida State uh, for my doctorate. So when you're growing up, aside from doing, you, there were all these music things, but did you do anything else? Were you involved in sports or student government or anything else that was kind of filling out your time? Uh, I was early. I mean, I was a, a Boy Scout for a long time. Um, mm. I was a Boy Scout all the way through Tiger Tiger Scouts all the way through. Uh, I didn't make Eagle because I started playing music too seriously. Mm. Um, I just I just stopped having time to go do this stuff, those things, even though I really enjoyed them. Uh, so I ended up make, making it all the way through a Life Scout uh, within that. I still regret that. I still kick myself for not. I just I was only like a few merit badges and an Eagle project away from finishing. It was really mm. close. I just I just couldn't see myself having the time to make all that work. Before before I turned 18. Um, but yeah, it, that's, that's a, a regret within that. So I did that a, a lot when I was younger. Um, I also, before I got really serious about it, actually was really into BMX racing. Oh, um, okay. so I, I used to ra- race BMX. Um, like, I mean, again, I was young, like, but I'm talking until I was like 14. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like, you know, particularly impressive or anything like that, but it was still a fun thing. Uh, so funny enough when COVID hit and I had my, my teaching job that was a little less dependent on my wrists. <laughs> um, I ended up getting it back into, uh, mountain biking. Um, so I've, I've, I'm, so there's actually really fabulous mountain biking down in Alabama. So I've been having a lot of fun, uh, kind of riding and, and, and doing those things. So did you ever have any, um, uh, wonderful injuries during your BMX time? Not during BMX. I wasn't good enough or fast <laughs> enough to, you know, <laughs> to, to really be injuring myself. Uh, uh-huh. you know, uh, I mean, maybe some scrapes and bruises, but no, no, like big, big falls or big injuries. I've, I've injured my, myself way more mountain biking than I have. Uh, oh, you know, there's, there's been a few times where I've had, I've been at school, like I haven't broken anything, but like, there's been some, some where I've been wearing a wrist brace for, you know, three weeks, mainly to prevent myself from playing. The minute I would play, it would, it would, you know, yeah. Um, it's like the cone of shame, pretty much the teaching <laughs> cone of shame. Yeah. There, there was one time that I'm, I, I thought I broke my, like something in my shoulder. Like it was, you know, I, I went kind of over the bars and ended up landing, like fell like 10 feet and landed just directly on my shoulder. And I was pretty ripped up. I was, you know, pretty bloody. Um, but then, yeah, it, uh, it was like, I, I, that started healing up, but it was still like a week later and I couldn't sleep on it. Like I could not do anything with it. So I ended up going to get an x-ray and it was just severely, severely bruised. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's been a few scares within that. Um, I tend to wear wrist braces at this point, if I'm doing anything crazy, um, if I'm just kind of casually riding, I don't, but if I'm trying to do uh, the, the, it's funny, there's like a, a little analogy. I've been telling my students about it that when you, when you're mountain biking, like you spend all this time, like pedaling up the hill, 
you know, and it's just, it's a, it's a pain in the butt. Like you don't want to do it. Like that's the worst part of it by far is you're just going straight up the entire time. And then you finally get to the top. You're like, all right, cool. It's time to get that reward, you know? And so even if you're at a place that's new that you've never been before, you're like, I'm, I'm about to, I'm going to do this. This is going to be super fun. Well, problem is, is I, I would, I would do that on places I had never ridden before. And there'd be some feature or something that I wasn't prepared for. or wasn't ready for. And all of a sudden I would just eat it, you know? Um, and so it kind of, to me, turned into this analogy for practicing, you know, it's like, you, know, you, you try to take something too fast. You're going to crash and burn, you know, <laughs> it's just, there's a lot more risk of physical injury in my case, uh, within that, but it's the same deal. If you take it slow and like figure out what the path is and figure out what it's going to be, um, that typically helps a little more. So what was your way into playing percussion then? So actually funny story. I tried, to play percussion going into beginning band. Mm -hmm. Um, but having a family of musicians, uh, my uncle, uh, said to my mom, he can't be a drummer. Sorry. And, uh, and so I ended up playing trumpet for, uh, trumpet for a few years. I ended up switching to euphonium for a year. Uh, so yeah, I played trumpet for two years, euphonium for a year, and then going into, I, I, it might, it might've been trumpet for a year, euphonium for a year. Um, and then kind of in the middle of sixth grade, maybe a month before the last concert of the year in sixth grade, uh, I had a, had the band director go, we only have one percussionist. We need two for Louie Louie. Does anybody want to play drums on Louie? There Louis? it is. Yep. It's like, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I literally carried drumsticks in my trumpet case, um, to school every day and only told my parents while we were driving to the concert that hey, I'm actually not playing trumpet this concert at all. I'm just playing drums. So so yeah, that, that was my kind of way in, um, ended up lying to my band director, uh, going into seventh grade, uh, Nola Jones, actually. So it's a name that a lot of, a lot of people actually know as a, as a DCI, uh, WGI judge, uh, and BOA within that. Um, but yeah, she was my band director and, uh, I totally lied to her and said, I played percussion because she'd let people to switch between any instruments, except you couldn't switch to percussion. Mm. So I was like, oh yeah, I already, I already played percussion. Yeah. yeah I... So definitely had only played Louie Louie before. So ended up, ended up doing that. Um, yeah. And then I was at MLK for six years. That's a seven through 12 school. Was that a school that you had to audition to get into? No, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, a musical arts or anything like that. It was, it was actual, it was actually health sciences and engineering magnet. Um, so there were GPA and kind of, you know, whatever requirements to get into it. Um, but it wasn't music related. Um, so yeah, yeah, and again, the, the music program is actually when I got there weren't very good. That was Nola's first year as well, um, and so music programs were, got progressively better as I was there, which was which was nice because yeah, she she was there, and then like the next year or two years later, I don't remember exactly. Uh, they hired Eric Zimmerman, who was a trumpet player in the Navy band, um, fabulous fabulous trumpet player and band director, and so they were there for most of my time, um, and then my senior year, um, they ended up both leaving and got two two new band directors that were both great as well. So. Within the, the doing mystique, who, who were some of the people that you were even in, in that early age that you were starting to connect with to kind of continue to do that even through college? Well, again, the, the evolution of mystique is also a really fascinating thing because like I was involved like some, we just celebrated our 28th year with mystique. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're, we're at this point a pretty old organization. Um, I was there on year four, I think. Um, so, you know, so it was a very, very young organization. Um, and so, 
you know, we didn't own a lot of instruments, you know, at that time, it was literally borrowing things from high schools. It was, it was all that we, I think we owned a drum line. We owned like half the pit. So we'd have to kind of, you know, piecemeal things together by borrowing from high schools and things like that. Getting to know the people involved with that early. So Don Click uh, is one of the founding members of Music City Mystique um, and was the guy who was writing for the pit uh, for the longest time. I think he wrote for nine years um, it was either eight or nine years, uh, he wrote, uh, so he was the front ensemble ranger and, and, and the director of the group. And then, uh, really my first, my first year, weirdly enough, I actually played cymbals. Uh, so my, my, I actually funny story of how I got into Mystique is, uh, I, I ended up going and I'd never seen a video of the group. I had no idea. This was pre YouTube. This was pre like, you know, you couldn't find this like a video anywhere. I, I ended up just going to auditions just based on this flyer that they handed out. And, looked at the section that had the least people signed up for it. And that's, that was symbols. So I wrote my name on symbol auditions and I ended up being the only person auditioning for symbols that weekend. So 14 year old me who had no idea what I was doing, just like, you know, doing the thing and trying to hold on for dear life. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily enough, they didn't have enough people auditioned, So I made the group. Um, and uh, so ended up playing symbols that year. Um, actually kind of hurt my shoulder that year playing symbols. And so one of the reasons I actually jumped into the pit uh, was because I, I, even though I liked playing symbols, I had kind of hurt my shoulder. Uh, so I had, I had made timpani at mid state, like our kind of region band, you know, um, and in my sophomore year of high school. So I was like, well, I guess I'll just play timpani, you know? <laughs> so I ended up playing timpani. Um, and really we didn't have anybody teaching us in the pit in 2001. Um, there, there wasn't really a pit tech, you know, that's not, wasn't really a thing. It was like Don would come and help out as much as he could, but it was kind of just run from within um, as a reference, like comparatively to our amazing, amazing pits that we have now at Mystique in 2001, there was only one person in the pit who played four mallets. So things have evolved quite a bit within that. Um, and so 2002, we ended up getting a few techs in, um, a guy named, a guy's named, uh, Dave and Dean Giddens, um, ended up kind of starting to help out with the pit. Um, and, and, you know, they were very instrumental in, in really just having instruction in front of us and having people in front of us. And that just made it so much better. Um, and then 2003 was when Eric Johnson became the arranger for Music City Mystique. Um, and so Eric brought in his old, his whole team of people. So like, that's when really the kind of, it really elevated is when we all of a sudden had that professional, like, you know, Eric was writing for Cavaliers at the time and they were, you know, they were one of the best pits in the activity. So like all of a sudden having Eric and his people and bringing in talent and all that stuff really just, completely escalated it. I mean, if you look at the difference between like 03 when he started and like even like 07, 08, I mean, like those pits are absolutely silly. Um, and so, yeah, getting to know Eric, especially, I mean, I would consider Eric like one of my biggest mentors by a, by a long shot. Um, and a lot of that was because of, I was marching Cavaliers and I was marching Mystique at the time, you know, and I just stayed in touch with him. You know, I, it, anytime I make a big life decision, you know, or a big, you know, something about my career or something about anything, like really Eric's the first person I call. Um, and so, so yes, through Mystique, getting to know Eric was, was probably the, the most valuable thing to my career. Um, that I've had. So how do you end up going to middle Tennessee state? <laughs> uh, funny enough, it was just close enough. Um, you know, like I, I didn't really, <clears throat> I didn't really look at other schools. Um, I really didn't audition anywhere else. It was just like, Oh, well, you know, I'm marching mystique and all my friends that march mystique are going to MTSU. And so, Oh, I'll just go to MTSU. You know, that's really, it was the, the decision process that I had. It was <laughs> pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I, I could have gone and auditioned for some, you know, big schools, but 
No, I, I, I ended up going to MTSU out of ignorance. Um, you know, and, and thrilled with that decision. Cause I mean, I, you know, I've learned so much from Lalo and from Andy Smith and, um, really, uh, some, some, some also people you probably don't know as well, Brad Palmer, Brad Palmer, uh, he was actually a, he was a grad student as well. And then started teaching adjunct. Um, but I did most of my mallet lessons with Brad. He actually was the, the, caption headed for blue coats front ensemble since like Oh two Oh three all the way up until last year. Um, so, so he's absolute fabulous teacher on mallets and things like that. Um, so yeah, so that, those are some people that kind of uh, really helped me get to where I am today for sure. Gotcha. When you start taking in college and particularly if it's through Lalo at some point, but what kinds of things are holes that need to be, um, worked up that you hadn't, that you hadn't done yet. basically, by the time I was a freshman, I had already marched drum corps on timpani. So timpani was not a problem. You know, um, I had already gone to orchestral music festival. So really most of my orchestral playing and things like that wasn't a problem. Really. It was for me kind of getting into some more advanced repertoire and things like that pretty early. Um, and that's one of the things that, uh, you know, I think I, I, I should have done more research going into NTSU knowing that like I wanted to focus on orchestral and timpani and marimba and like all these kind of things. And like, those are the things that like, that's not necessarily Lalo's strengths. You know, that's not Lalo, what Lalo does, does really, really well. Um, and at that time it was really just Lalo teaching. We didn't have all the adjuncts that they have now um, kind of helping out. And so one of the, one of the things that kind of initially I was kind of bummed, like, oh, but I want to study all these things. Why, you know, what so that's why I ended up doing things like the Steven seminar and the Duff class and and you know Eastern Music Festival again. Um is trying to get some more of that kind of feedback. And then I once I realized that like, wait a minute, like I'm stupid. Like Lalo is great at all these things that I'm not. Like, let me let me learn all these different things. So that's when I really started getting into um kind of the arranging side of things. He's one of the first people who really pushed me into doing the arranging thing. Um, that's when I kind of got into all the hand percussion things and like those hand percussion skills opened so many doors for me, especially at places like North Texas and Florida state um, where like, even if you think about a school like North Texas, like yes, they have teachers that do that, but like it's not mandatory for any of the students to go through that process. So there's not that many students who really are great hand drummers, um, at, you know, at the undergrad level within that. And so one of the, one of the nice things for me is that I walked in my very first year at UNT and like I was one of two or three people in the entire percussion studio that was really already proficient at hand drums. So I got a lot of opportunities to play with a lot of the top jazz groups to play with, uh, you know, ended up playing with Lyle Mays in the one o'clock, like ended up playing with the, like doing a lot of these fun things as a result of those skills, um, which was, which was pretty cool. So yeah, so definitely the, the, from Lalo, the business side of things, um, the hand percussion side of things, the arranging side of things, understanding the music industry and all that. Like I, I get, I got all that from Lalo. Any specifics music industry wise that impressed upon you at that point? Um, yeah, I think, well, number one, Lalo was writing a bunch of music at the time. So, I mean, like understanding the publishing and understanding royalties and understanding those kind of things. Um, but also just understanding general artist relations things, you know, at that time, you know, he was, he was an artist for Pearl Evans, innovative Zildjian. Like he, he understood, like when you go do clinics, here's what you expect, you know? And like, you know, he, he was very clear that like, you know, yes, you are working for the company, but the company needs to be working for you too. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a double-sided um, thing. Like don't, don't just take a deal because somebody says like, we want you to play our sticks. And then, you know, you're still having to buy everything and do all the things. And like, right. you know, uh, it's just very clear, like just get your values worth, you know, out of any of these relationships because that's what they're there for. 
So again, you know, and that evolved. That's what was actually really fun to kind of watch that evolve as I then became the artist relations manager for Pearl, um, where I was the one having to think about all those kind of things of, you know, understanding per somebody's sphere of influence and understand understanding how all that stuff works. Um, yeah, it was a fun, fun evolution from from getting to know Lalo's thoughts on it to then the industry side of it too. Literature wise, what were some of the things you were covering, uh, either lessons or ensemble? I mean, we did a lot of method books early. I mean, we're talking like things like the Cerrone book, uh, Lalo's book, uh, Pratt book um, for snare drum. Uh, Mallets, at that point, like there weren't any of the real curriculum style books that we have now. Like like, like Mark Ford's book wasn't out yet. Julie's Impressions on Wood wasn't out yet. Actually, junior, it was either my junior or senior year, uh, I, I helped proofread Julie's book because uh, Julie was there, obviously. You know, she wasn't at, she wasn't teaching at the time because Andy Smith was still teaching the drumline. She didn't take over and start teaching at MTSU until Andy left. Um, but yeah, so I ended up proofreading Impressions on Wood. But really a lot of it was more... I, you know, and what, what Lala was doing curriculum wise with a lot of other students, I'm not quite sure. Um, I know for me, um, it, it was a lot like my freshman year, I was playing like Tanaka two movements and Virginia Tate and like some Samut rotations and things, things like that. We did do Goldenberg, um, kind of throughout sprinkled throughout. Do you go right to North Texas after? I had a semester off cause I graduated in December Um, so I graduated December, had a semester off and then yeah, straight to, straight to North Texas. Um, so while I was at UN semester, uh, actually, so funny enough, I ended up, uh, um, still kind of being around MTSU a little bit. I I did some freelance things. I was, I was playing a lot of gigs in Nashville. Um, I was playing quite a bit, uh, but I was also still, um, involved with the wind ensemble at MTSU, they were playing CBDNA uh, like in like February or March or something like that. So the director asked me to stay on since a lot of the rep they were playing on that was from the fall. So I ended up continuing to play, even though I graduated um, all the way through that, uh, which was, which was fun. Yeah. Just playing freelance and all that. And that's also the first summer I was going to be teaching drum corps. So that was going to, it was going into my first summer full-time teaching spirit. Uh, so there were a lot of times that in the spring I was going to camps or I was going to, you know, things like that. And then spent probably about eight weeks over the summer uh, teaching spirit before I got to UNT. When you get to UNT, your first, Oh, I'm not in Nashville anymore. <laughs> I think because the very first departmental they do, uh, so departmental is like what most people call studio class, you know, but departmental is like all 140 percussion majors at UNT in the recital hall. Um, but the very first one they do is they introduce, they introduce every, all the faculty and then it's a recital hour for the grad students. So all the grad students have to play. Um, and so your very first introduction to 140 people is like, oh, well, looks like I'm playing a solo for you. All right. Nice to meet you all. Um, and so, yeah, just seeing all the other grad students, um, you know, cause that, that class that I was in there with, uh, like my second year, especially was like, was Dave Hall, you know, was in there, you know, myself, uh, Ryan Kilgore, who's the, again, the music coordinator at, at Blue Coats. Um, I mean, we're talking about uh, Brian Mueller. Uh, so it's like, we're talking about people who are fabulous at what they do. Um, oh, and uh, uh, two Japanese marimbists, um, uh, Noriko Sushigoshi um, and Hiromi Kamiya. And so like, they're obviously fabulous what they do too. And so you just hear everybody play. Like I remember Brian Mueller played like uh, the Samud arrangement of Porgy and Bess. Um, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what other people played, but I mean, like we're, we're talking about serious stuff and it was just fun all of a sudden to hear like, Oh yeah, we're, 
we're not messing around here. <laughs> so yeah, I ended up playing my first year. I ended up doing uh, the Oliverio uh, Timpani Concerto for eight drums. Mm. Um, again, just getting dorky right off the bat. So with Door Texas, what did you end up? How did you end up splitting up your who you were taking lessons with throughout that time? Well, it's it's one of my favorite things about UNT is that. I ended up getting to get a lot of information um, from a lot of different teachers, um, but it's kind of it's kind of split up for you, I, I guess is the easiest way to say it. Um, because like, really, what the grad program is, at least when I was there at UNT, is you're going through the undergrad undergrad curriculum just in a very compressed way, um, and so you might not do every single book, but like you're generally like snare snare is going to be you know, the undergrad level one and two just smashed together. Um, and then timpani is going to be usually just a level two, but keyboards, like you're doing, you're doing all the Goldenberg etudes. You're doing all those things, even as a grad student, um, within that. And, and so you kind of have to have like, there's your mallet semester with Ford. There's your snare semester with Paul. There's your timpani semester with Dean. Um, you know, then you'd have, uh, you know, drum, a drum set with one of the, the drum set teachers. If you were really good, you might study with Soph the first time. Um, I only studied with Soph on my second round because I'm, I, you know, drum set's not my strength, um, within that. Um, and then I took a semester of, um, Actually, I took two semesters of mallets, and I took another one of those with 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 Ford. Um, took a semester of jazz vibes with uh, Ed Smith, and then at that point, you're you're in recital semester, you know. So really, when I got to my recital semester, that's when I able I was able to uh, get on with Doc Citroma. So I ended up taking lessons with with Doc, and I think with Dean again um, within that, or that might have been when I was no, that was when I was taking with uh, with Soph. So yeah, so I, I so really the only person that I studied two semesters with is Ford. Um, everybody else, it was just one off those kind of things. So, um, you know, it's a positive and a negative. It's one of the, it's still, I think my favorite experience I've had, because I think that you get so much of what a teacher's about through a semester of study with them. And I think that the fact that I got to have seven different teachers worth of semester long study, um, I gained so much insight into what their initial thoughts and feelings and processes are. Um, but one of the things that I uh, disliked, and this is not a not a, a criticism, it's just one of the it, that this counteracts the positives of what I just mentioned, um, is that not one teacher gets to know you're playing really intimately as a person. Um, like you know, Paul Rennick might know how you play snare drum, and Mark Ford might know how you play marimba, um, but nobody really understood you as a player. Um, and so that's why when I was applying for DMA programs, I was looking for like, what's a place that has one person who teaches, who has proven consistent track record of placing people in jobs and who has great ears, you know, that's what I wanted. And so that's why I ended up finding parks at Florida state because he's exactly that. He's that micromanage, like I see you and all the things you do and we're going to fix these little things and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, I think that that was a good balance between the North Texas kind of broad education of from a lot of different people into the really focused education and fo focus of one person. Were, did you do anything because you're in Texas with any high schools there? No, actually. Uh, so actually, funny enough, when when Ford called me to offer me the assistantship, he actually mentioned that like you have two options, like the assistantship zeroes if you want it. You know, here's how much it pays. Um, this is your responsibilities if you do that. He's like, but, you know, there's a lot of schools in the area that you could go teach lessons for and make 
literally a full salary while you're in your master's. Um, so if you're one, if you want to do that, that's totally fine too. And you will end up giving you just a small scholarship that gets you in-state tuition, um, within that. So I had options, but the big thing for me was if I wanted to teach college, I needed to teach college, you know, um, I didn't need to teach lessons at high school. Um, so yeah, so for me, that was the, the big determining factor was, was making sure that, um, I got that college teaching experience. I mean, my first semester, it was silly, my first semester at UNT, I was teaching 20 level one snare drum students. Um, nothing makes you understand the Pratt book or the Cerrone or uh, Morello master studies more than literally having 10 hours a week to practice teaching it. Um, and it, it, because of the curriculum system that they use, like it was every student was on the same thing every week. Yeah. And so yeah. Like I always felt bad for the first lesson and the last lesson. Cause the first lesson for me was always me figuring out how to teach it. Like I had a good idea how to play it, but like figuring out the ways that you wanted to talk about things and all that. Then I usually got pretty comfortable, but by the last student is like, I don't even need to hear you play it. Like just, this is what you should fix. You're going to screw this up. You're going to screw this up, screw this up. Okay. See you later. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you just, you, you had it on such a, you know, you had, you were on a roll. You knew what everybody's mistakes had been. You had seen the average, you knew they weren't going to make any mistakes that nobody had made before, you know? So that was, uh, that was always interesting. Yeah. Was your assistantship just lessened? It was my first semester. Actually, they're really good about evolving your assistantship um, based on your strengths, but also just based on uh, giving you a variety. So when you leave, you can have, say you've done kind of everything. So yeah, my first semester, I did 20 lessons. My second semester, I think I did like 10 lessons and steel band. Um, and then my, my third semester, I did the steel band and percussion ensemble, but no lessons. And to be honest, I don't remember what I did my fourth semester. Um, it it, it might've been offset. I might've, I might've done percussion ensemble my last semester. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was, it was nice. Oh, that was it. I did percussion methods my last semester. Um, so I, I did some lessons, like maybe like 10 lessons and class percussion. Do you go right to Florida state? Yes, I did. So, so funny enough, I was, I was talking about doing, like doing some time in between, you know, I, that, that was my initial plan. Cause I, I didn't want to be somebody who kind of graduated with the doctorate having done nothing, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that, but quickly Lalo, uh, convinced me like, bro, you're already doing enough. You're already teaching. You're already doing the drum core thing. You're already getting, getting your name out there. Like, trust me, if you, the minute that you leave school and you go into the real world, you're not going to come back. Um, and he's totally right. I mean, like literally the minute I was out of school, like I, the reason I didn't finish my doctorate is because the minute I was in the real world, I was, I was busy the whole time mm-hmm. um, between playing and teaching and writing and all that. And so I, I definitely would not have been able to go back to school and kind of stop making that money and doing that thing. Um, so, yeah, so I'm really glad that Lalo convinced me like, just bro, just go ahead and do it. Trust me. And uh, so, yeah, I, I ended up going straight in within that. Um, and uh, at FSU, our assistantships were, we're a little less involved because, um, you know, UNT is a gigantic school. They need TA help to kind of be, kind of be able to teach that much, uh, with FSU, it's only 24 people. And so like really parks is able to handle most of that on his own. Um, so we weren't re- really doing a lot of teaching. Um, I would do like occasional, like every other week, secondary lessons kind of with students. So like, uh, so actually funny enough, like, um, Connor Stevens, uh, who teaches at inter- interlock 
Canal and uh, Stephen Keener, who's in, I believe, Oregon Symphony. Like I taught them both how to play hand drums in their lessons within that. Um, and so like you have, I had things like that that I would do. Um, but a lot of it was more teaching class percussion, um, you know, really dealing with logistics. Like a lot of the assistantships are about logistics and moving gear and that kind of stuff. So yeah. did Parks swear significantly more than your other professors or extremely significantly more than your other professors? <laughs> um, he was actually pretty good. Okay. Overall. You know, it was really probably, it was pretty good. Uh, it was realistically by the time we got into the PASIC, because I, I was lucky enough to play PASIC with UNT and FSU. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and even more fun is that I was a part of both groups that were applying and, and played. So like I was, I was very much a part of helping pick what, what was going to be on the, you know, submission and all that. Um, and so it was really interesting. And like, so the way that UNT handled PASIC was just like, it was like a normal semester. Cause it's such a big school. Uh, th- this was the crazy thing to think about is that when UNT played PASIC, we played with both the Gamelon had won and the percussion ensemble won. So like two ensembles that were completely separate ended up winning. So even when those groups were at PASIC, there were still 70 people back at UNT in the studio within yep. that. So you can't, you can't treat it like it's, you know, you know, you can't, it's not you the can't semester it like, thing. It's just, yeah, ugly. yeah. It's, it, it's just one of the things that they're doing. Yep. Um, whereas with FSU, I, I remember Parks at our very first meeting of the semester was like, do you expect this to be an educational semester? You were wrong. This is just about making PASIC as good as it can humanly be. That is our only goal. PASIC is going to slay. And that's our only goal. So I would say basic semester was probably where I heard the most uh, direct uh, speak from Parks. <laughs> direct speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, so at that point, with all of your experiences, what kinds of things – I understand that you you get the chance to work with Parks directly and he gets to know you fully as a, as a, yeah. as a percussionist. But like what kinds of things is he like – you talked about he he will find the nitty. I mean, his ear is incredible. So, what kinds of things are you? Do you need from him, or does he find that he he needs you to get better at? I would say that the, the biggest thing for me was just somebody that that is willing to nitpick things. Yeah. You know, it's like again, like uh, I would say that the closest I had to that was at UNT uh, Doc Shatroma. Uh, was was the closest to that. And that was just my last semester. And we were in the middle of like preparing for recital. So I didn't really have a chance to do things like excerpts or things like where I, where I could have somebody like, you know, Doc did it on my recital rep. But what was nice about Parks is that it would be on like De La Cluse and it would be on excerpts. It would be on everything. And he would be that. But, but so we were covering a lot less material than we were covering at North Texas. Um, but it was a much more focused on like making it sound pristine. Um, and I think that's the thing that helped the most. Um, like, cause I, at that point, technically I was fine. Like I didn't really have anything that I was technically deficient on. Um, by the time I got to my doctorate again, like uh, usually most people like timpani is going to be their weakness. And for me, like timpani was a strength, you know? And so I, same, I, I, I had kind of done the Steven seminar and kind of marimba had become a strength. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything that I walked into that like I needed Park's expertise on as much as I needed his ears and his process uh, within that. Like just like his knowledge of theory, his knowledge of what well, perfect pitch helps. 
Um, you know, but his knowledge of being able to talk about like, why are you crescendoing this phrase and not this phrase because of the harmonic resolution of this to this, the, you know, like those kind of things really helped, um, make me think a lot more about theory as a performer, um, and structure and, uh, form. Uh, he was really good about, you know, we'd play Bach and he would literally diagram out the form of the, you know, movement you're playing while you're playing it. Like, yeah, he's that, that kind of person that can do that. Um, so that, that was always really helpful with that. Um, yeah. And, and also just like kind of being the person who would encourage you to like, one of the, to be honest, one of the main reasons I went to FSU wasn't Parks as a player, as much as Parks as a recording engineer. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that's like, we, we had, I had tried to go to Florida state for my master's, um, but there weren't as any assistantships available. And he actually convinced me to go somewhere else. Like, just like, no, you don't need to pay for school. Go, you know, go somewhere else. And then well, let's keep in touch. So like over that two years, like we were exchanging audio files back and forth of recording projects. I was doing recording projects he was doing. Uh, Cause I was already a pretty active recording person at that time. Um, I wouldn't call myself an engineer yet at that time, but, um, and so, so, yeah, we would kind of trade back and forth things. And then he saw me play at PASIC and it was like a no brainer. Like we, we, we got along really well talking about the audio side of things. Um, and then also the playing side was great too. Um, so, so yeah, it was, that's really mainly the reason I went for parks, uh, was to have that background and that environment that allowed us to do those kind of things. Um, so a lot of our lessons really were kind of talking about recording through playing, we're talking about playing through recording, if that makes sense, you know, using one to talk about the other, um, you know, talking about editing, talking about, um, you know, going back and listening to audio files to hear like, was that, was that five stroke as, as clean as the seven stroke? No, let's go listen, you know, those kind of things. So that was fun. Got it. Well, I, that was going to ask, that was the next thing. It was, uh, how at that point, how, how far into the recording side was he, did he already have his own production company? I don't think he had actually done any CDs aside from the first uh, FSU disc. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's one of the ones that like early he was sending me saying like, Hey, if you have any thoughts, you know, on that. So like, I was, it was fun kind of being hearing early versions of that first album um, within that. And I remember giving him some feedback. I, I think he just expected me to like, you know, be like, Hey, it all sounds great. But I like, I had like a two page of like, this is, I'm hearing this, I'm noticing this, like, it sounds like the vocalist is in a different room or different, whatever, yeah. you know? Um, and yeah, so he came back like, Oh wow. Like, like this is all awesome, you know? Um, and so great feedback. And so that's one of the, one of the reasons that we kind of stayed in touch was, was through that process. But yeah. And then really while I was there, I don't think he had done any of the solo stuff while I was there. It was really after that he started doing a lot of that. But uh, funny enough, I'm the one who got him involved with the video side. Like he didn't know anything about the video. So I was the one with some knowledge of that kind of coming in and helping him get that thing figured out. Um, he's obviously, you know, he does it way more than I do now because he's been way more involved with recording albums and things like that. But um, yeah, it was fun to be part of that collaborative process of learning how to do the video thing and how to make that work. So Now, at what point do you do you realize that you're not going to finish this degree right off the bat? I think a lot of it came down to when I, when I started him, so I, I didn't kind of go full into the depth of this, but like when I started MTSU, I knew I was just a one-year position. So I, I was constantly figuring out like what's next, you know, like, cause I knew that that was going to end and it wasn't something I was qualified for. Um, they weren't interested in a percussionist for that position um, for the band thing. And so what I, what I quickly realized is like, I got to find something else. So I was, I was arranging like a, like a devil. Like I was just like, just full force. I think I wrote for eight indoor groups that year. So like 
I was just working myself to the bone. And then in the middle of that, I was, I, I became an artist for Pearl and uh, was going to pick up my marimba. I had bought an artist classic at the time um, from them. And uh, I was just like, you know, shooting the breeze with Sean, the friends. And I was just showing them some pictures of instruments I had restored. My, my dad's a woodworker, a woodturner. Um, and so I had kind of worked with him to restore some instruments and do some things like taking an old junky Yamaha vibraphone and refinished all the rails and redone the bars and like done all those kind of things. And like Sean looks at me like real, like he said, you, you said your MTSU gig is like, you know, ending after this year. It's like, yeah. He's like, well, we have a job open right now. That's like right up your alley. If it's something you're interested in. Um, so yeah, so I, it was like kind of a walked into the Pearl thing, but the problem was they needed somebody to start. This was in January. They needed somebody to start immediately. So I was still full-time for the rest of the year at MTSU and I was writing eight WGI shows and I was writing for Phantom Regiment and I was living in an hour away from MTSU. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up doing, I just crammed my full-time load into three days a week at MTSU that did two days a week at Pearl did part-time um, until May. And then I took over full-time uh, within that. So by the end of that, I was so burned out, you know, my wife hated me, you know, like, like it, it wasn't fun for anybody, you know um, it, it was, it, I was incredibly burnt out. That's why I stopped writing for anybody aside from mystique was after that year was, it was just like, I can't do this anymore. You know, I can't for indoor actually, I, I was burnt out. So a lot of it was just sheer sake of time. Like I could have finished probably that in that year if I was just at MTSU. And actually that was a plan. I had already commissioned a few pieces um, to play on a solo recital um, and all that. But like, then I got that Pearl job and I was writing a bunch, you know, just like it was off the table. Um, and then by the time I was jumping into the Pearl job, that was 2013, like May of 2013 that I started full-time. Um, well, then I was doing trying to do a summer of drum corps while I was full-time at Pearl. Um, you got to the fall you know, and then uh, going into 2014 was when Eric Johnson retired from writing for Music City Mystique. That's when I ended up taking over. Um, and so you kind of have this transition of, yes, I was doing all this and I tried to stop doing that. But then all of a sudden added Mystique to the plate, which is a big thing. So it just I had multiple big you know, plate spinning. Um, and so it's not that I didn't want to finish. It's just that just realistically the time, you know, I was going to have to say no to money. I was going to have to say no to a real big kind of, you know, a resume level job in order to do it. And then it got to the point where once I started kind of being comfortable in that, that combination of drum core and mystique and Pearl, um, then at that point I was out of state and then it was going to cost too much. So, so it wasn't, it wasn't like this one, one moment where I decided that I wasn't going to finish it. Um, it was really kind of this evolution of once I kind of looked into it, it was like, Oh, never mind, I'm good, you know. <laughs> right. Well, and and as you said, if if you were doing an industry job, they don't need the doctorate. No, no, they barely need it. You know, most of them don't really care about the undergrad. I mean, like undergrad's helpful because it shows that you at least have gone through something. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah our, the president of Pearl, you know, I don't think has an undergrad, you know, that's that's fine, you know, that's for for what for what it is, you know, if, as long as you have that business savvy and understanding of those kind of things, like, you know, and yeah. it, it, it's rooted as a drum company, you know, it's not, right. you know, it's not a big company by, by real, by, by, by real business standards. It's not very big at all. So. Yeah. Was it hard to give up those other eight programs or whatever it was that you were doing WGI or were you like, no, okay. not at all. Well, well and, and, the re and the reason I say that is a lot of them, I was just doing for the money. You know, I was a college yeah. student, you know, kind of like, even when I was in MTSU, I was still kind of acting like I was a college student, mm -hmm. um, you know, just trying to write to make money. Um, so it's not that I didn't enjoy them, but like that quantity of them was not enjoyable to me. Um, 
So I enjoyed every single one of the programs I worked with, but I didn't like the quantity. Once I had that stable full-time salary, good money salary with Pearl, all of a sudden it was like, okay, I'm comfortable now. Like I don't need this from a financial standpoint. Um, so now I'll do and, the ones I want to do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that, that was really nice. So that all of a sudden I could just decide what I wanted. And one of the things is like, especially in the industry, um, you kind of have a trade show season and that trade yeah. show season is like PASIC goes straight to Midwest, goes straight to NAM, yeah. goes straight yeah. to TMEA. So like really from like November through March, you're pretty booked and you're traveling a bunch or you're recovering from traveling or you're preparing to travel, yeah. you know? So it's always pretty crazy. And so um, trying to write a bunch of shows in that time frame is really hard. So yeah. like, that's why I, so I still am involved a lot. Like I, at this point, I think I'm writing for six marching bands, you know, but thing is that's in the summer where I do have free time now. Um, so that's very achievable, you know, um, again, I still probably write a group or two too many, you know, <laughs> for my comfort, but overall, um, I do enjoy working with the groups that I do. I've kind of gotten it to the point where I only really work with friends and, you know, people like that. I don't really just kind of contract write anymore where I'm just kind of writing for somebody that I don't know. I'm usually writing for friends or colleagues, uh, within that. So that makes it a lot more fun too, that it's a, it's a way for me to work with those people. So, yeah. What was your typical day-to-day life at Pearl then? <laughs> if there was um, something. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, it really just depended on the day. Um, there was a lot of times where I would be dealing with product support things. Um, so, so I would say that's probably my primary was my primary role um, was being the specialist, uh, for both Adams and Pearl concert, where if somebody's like, you know, they email saying like, I have a 15 year old marimba, um, that I have this flat wheel, like, what do I need to replace this? Um, one of the, it's, it's, uh, this is a compliment and not at the same time. <laughs> and, th- and that Adams is really amazing at never resting on their laurels and just like leaving a product where it is. So it's always evolving. It's always changing. It's always getting better. Um, which is, a, which is awesome for the consumer. You know, that's, that's what we want is that all our instruments are always getting better. The problem is, as somebody who's trying to support it is that that doesn't mean that you can just say like, Oh, this is the wheel for that model. Like it doesn't work that way. Like, you know, and so we had a pretty deep and, and, and you don't, you can't have schematics for every little variation of every single little thing. Um, and so that was one of those things where I was having to look at pictures and like, remember like, okay, I think that's the O nine spec, you know, wing screw that goes along with this dampening box and like that, it was that kind of thing. So there, so it was actually kind of fun because there was a lot of detective work and, uh, kind of problem solving, uh, which, which I really enjoy. Um, you know, and then you also add on the kind of the logistics element of it. So like if we supported a music festival, like, um, like a music fest up in Canada or Eastern music festival or the, the chosen veil percussion seminar, like I would be the one in charge of like making sure gear is reserved, making sure that all the things are where they need to be and shipped on time to arrive to coordinate with that. I would get to fly out and go hang with those, you know, people for, you know, a few days, we hang out at chosen veil, watch great music. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, then kind of help pack up at the end and make sure the shipping take, gets taken care of for it to leave. So there's a lot of those kind of things. I mean, artist relations wise, I was in charge entirely of deciding who to bring on as an artist, who to kind of court, who to try to get on board. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were there like when we got, you know, like Nancy Zeltzman on board, um, I'm blanking on a bunch of other names, but like, you know, like getting, getting great people involved. Um, and w- one of the nice things about working at Pearl, um, and I, you know, I'm not saying it cause I work there, but like, it's really easy to do artist relations for a company that has great products. 
you know, it's really, really easy when like, you don't have to sell the products to people. Like they know they sound great. They hear them all the time. Um, it makes it really, really easy. And so one of the nice things about Pearl is that really it wasn't a matter of like trying to convince people like, Hey, we'll, we'll hook you up if you play our product. Like that, that wasn't how we had to do it at all. It was more like you play our products already. You know, we, we like that you play our products. Let's make this an official relationship and figure out how this can be mutually beneficial for both of us um, within that. So that, that was always a good thing. Um, but it was hard. I mean, cause like one of the, one of the things that most people don't understand is that like the artist relations thing in a company like that artist relations program is an arm of the marketing department. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so it is, it is a way for the company to get, you know, get the products out in front of certain people. Um, and so some, some people don't realize like, just because you're a great player doesn't mean you're going to be a great artist. You know, if you, if you simply are, you know, second percussion in the blank Philharmonic, um, but you don't teach, you don't, you know, uh, do clinics, you don't do all these kind of things. Like uh, the people who come to an orchestra concert aren't buying gear. You know, um, so it's, uh, you know, yes, we would love for you to use the gear, but like, don't expect us to bend over backwards to like provide a bunch of gear for you. If right. like, you're not putting it in front of people that are, that have purchasing power. Um, sure. that's why you'll notice that there's a lot of like, um, we look, we look a lot for like the regional spheres of influence. So if, if like, cause we have a map of artists, not, on, not only like, you know, a list of artists, but also a map of artists. So we can see like, man, there's nobody in this kind of region that we have that's an artist. So if somebody applies, you know, even if they might not be on the same playing level as somebody else, like their regional influence is really important to that. Um, so, so I think that that's what people don't realize is that there's more things that go into it rather than like, how well do I play velocities? You know, that's not, that's not the criteria of being an artist for a company like that at all. Well, you picked the right piece on that one. <laughs> 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really we don't all need to hear that piece much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I say that as someone who played it in, in doctoral program and, and like literally the, the moment I finished playing that in the concert, I'm like, never again. <laughs> and I'm done. Yes. <laughs> Mission accomplished. I made it to the Fun. end. Fun. <laughs> Matt, I finished up with a segment called random ask questions. Sounds good. All right. First question. What's an issue? And you could take this in percussion education, percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. I think the biggest thing that bothers me um, about percussion education in general, uh, it's a it's a kind of a two-parted thing, is that when people come to the idea of the way to do things as an absolute, um, that the way that we play timpani is this way, you know, and, and, and I think that there's a lot of people who kind of have this voodoo around what they do and how they do it. And they just assume that because their teacher taught them this way, this is the only way it happens. This is the only way it works. Like one of the things that I really enjoyed about how uh, Lee treats the Stevens seminar is that you do some of those kind of blind listening experiments where it's just like, all right, cool. You think you can make a difference in sound by like how you hold the mallet or how you do whatever. All right, cool. Everyone turn around. One person gets to stay turned around to make sure that they're keeping these three things consistent, but everything else you can change. And I really, really adopted that from a teaching standpoint of just like, no, no, no. Like I could care less how you're getting the sound. What does it sound like? Stop acting like all of this is what matters. And so I, I think there's so many people who come in with absolutists, uh, statements of like, you know, 
I can't believe they hold the mallet this way because like that doesn't sound good. It's like, are you listening to it? Yes. It sounds fine. You know, mm-hmm. but just, it, it's just not the way that you hold the mallets or the way that you teach or the way you, whatever. Um, and so I think that that absolutist nature of this is the way we play is the most offensive thing to me by far. I mean, you think about like timpanists, like, you know, you watch German timpanists just like downstroke, you know, and the, you know what, they sound amazing. You know, you watch, you know, a timpanist from Cleveland, like incredible lift, incredible upstroke. Yeah. They sound amazing. You know, like you can sound good that the, there's other components to sounding good than your technical approach to that. Um, so yeah, that's my, my big one, I think. Yeah. Not to go in. Actually, it made me think, do you know, uh, I would, I'm, I would guess you would Laura Noah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I had her on a few weeks ago, and I remember that she said she gave me a whole rundown of, of Goodman versus Duff, uh, and and it was like it was exactly that kind of thing. Like uh, you, what it, that someone could play Goodman style, and it would totally work for them. And then same thing, you play the Duff style it would totally work for them, and just depends on the like the physical nature of that person, essentially. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's great. All right. Other questions, not necessarily uh, percussion related, but has anyone nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? <laughs> oh, I'm trying to think. I, I This is probably the only one I remember. I, I had some students at Spirit that like one of the, it, especially when I was younger, it was hard for me to get angry. I'm a pretty generally happy person. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard for me that even when I'm like, I'm trying to get students to like, come on, let's go. Like I, it's hard for me to sound like I'm actually serious because it's just like, all right, come on guys, let's do this. You know? And, and, uh, but, I, but I was, I was, I wasn't yelling at him, but I was kind of, you know, like getting aggressive about like, we need to move. Come on, we got to go faster. And like, it just almost instantly, like the half the spirit pits just like, you know, just parroting things back to me, like, come on, let's move. Make it happen. You know? And uh, it's just one of those, it's like, all of a sudden it's just like, <sighs> like I can't win on this one. Um, but yeah. So I, I've gotten better about being more, more uh, direct and uh, I, don't, I don't know the right word for it. I was going to say aggressive, but it's not, it's not that, but you know what I mean? Just like being able to make my, make my feelings known a little more obviously to students if I'm not very happy with them. Gotcha. So. I've gotten better at that. <laughs> Wait, so do you, I'm curious, just because of the way you, you had the students talk back to you, do, did you have a stronger Southern accent at some point? No, I, I'm, I'm way exaggerating. Okay. No, I, right. I, 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 my, it's one of those, like my dad has a pretty strong Southern accent. Um, my mom doesn't really, uh, but I grew up like marching Cavaliers and like, like where I was up around Northerners and things like, things like, things like that a bunch. So yeah. like I have a pretty neutral accent. I know people from the North would say I have a Southern accent, but it's definitely not a, not a deep accent. So. No, it was, very, it sounded very Midwest to me. Yeah. So I think it's just spending, spending time with all my, all my drum corps friends for so yeah. long. Yeah. I got you. That's good. What's the most impractical item of clothing you own? <laughs> impractical item of clothing. That's a really good one. Um, uh, Halloween costumes don't count that, right? I mean, that's a... Well, if you still have them. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I do have them in the closet right now. Yeah, I, I, I did go to a Halloween party maybe five, six years ago and didn't have anything. So we just stopped at Target on the way there. Ended up finding like an X-Wing pilot costume um so i still have that because anytime i need a halloween costume now if i if i have to have one 
I got my X-Wing pilot costume ready to go. So <laughs> that's good. Helmet and everything, you know. Yeah. That's okay. almost practical at this point. Oh almost, yeah. <laughs> All right. Next question. What's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? Ah, oh, man. Uh, there's a there's a bunch. Um I'm gonna go with with one that is great in its terribleness first. Okay. And this is this is like probably my childhood movie that I watched the most, Down Periscope. It's a Kelsey Grammer movie about a submarine. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, it's probably one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, mm-hmm. It's super hilarious, but it's about, uh, it's about Kelsey Grammer. Um, I, I won't give you the, the real details of the story because yeah, yeah. that's a little inappropriate. Don't, don't but, spoil but, it for me, please. But it's hilarious. Yeah. But, but he's, uh, he it's, ends up getting put in command of a diesel submarine that has to fight against the nuclear submarine Navy mm-hmm. uh, in, in war games. Um, and that's it's super hilarious. So, uh, so that, that's the good one. Yeah. Bad, bad movie. Oh man. I wish I, I the, here's the problem is I, I run my life based on lists and like digital, like I, I have such a bad memory for things like this. Um, but man, I, I, I know I've seen a bunch of bad movies. Can't think of one. I'm sorry. I, 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 I know I have multiple ones in my head, but I'll, uh, if, if I think of one, I'll, uh, <laughs> five, five minutes after we hang up, you'll have four yeah, exactly. ready for you. Exactly. Gotcha. What uh, What's a favorite book? My favorite book by a long shot, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Oh it's, yeah. Mark by Mark Manson. It yeah. completely reframed my life of how I thought about things. Um, Cause it's one of those, like, you know, we all, when we're students have this idea of like, I want to do X, 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 like all these kind of things. And like, when I, when I do those things, like I'm going to be so excited about them. And like, um, I, then I started getting to do those kind of things. Um, and you know, when, when I was all at once, like, for example, my, my semester at, at, uh, MTSU and Pearl at the same time, it's like, I'm teaching college, I'm working in the industry, I'm writing for a, you know, a top three drum corps. Like I'm, you know, doing all these things like, and, and I was like hating my life more than any thing I possibly could. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the cool things that like the subtle art talks about is this idea that like, happiness is not about just getting the things that you want. It's about understanding what you're willing to suffer through to get those. Um, and it was that reframing of things like, Oh God, you know, like that totally makes sense. Is that like, it's not just this matter of like, I get to do these cool things, but like, you know, doing something like blue coats, it's, it's, it's amazing. But like, I end up, you know, traveling probably once a month for three or four days. And then over the summer for like a month and a half to do it. So it's like one of those things that's taking away, taking me away from hanging with my wife, taking me away from family, away from home. Um, but to me, it's a worthwhile trade-off. You know, I think I've gotten to the point where everything I do is worth the trade-off. Um, but there's always trade-offs for everything you do, you know, you know, like the difference between like the university job and the Pearl job is that like, you know, while the Pearl job didn't stop. And like, that's one of the things I didn't like about it. It was year round, all this kind of stuff. There were a lot more times, like if I just wanted to kind of screw around at work for an hour and like, just like look on Facebook or something, like you can totally do that, you know? And and like, you're going to have to make up the work because the email's still there and the work's still there. You're just going to have to work around it. But like, when you're talking about the university life, like, you know, I start teaching lessons at this time and I stop teaching lessons at this time. I'm one-on-one with a student. There's very little time for me to like, like zone out. 
you know? And so there's that kind of trade-off of like, but you get to the end of the day and you're exhausted because you didn't have that time to kind of take a break in the middle of it. Um, And so I think that, again, that's the trade-off, but at the same time with the university thing, we have a whole summer off, you know, it's great. Um, So again, I think that understanding that everything has the pluses and minuses, that there aren't any things that are just all pluses that they just don't exist. And you just have to understand that, that it's this balance of suffering and positive thinking. Um, yeah, there, there are a lot of other things in that. Um, you know, one of the other interesting ones was the idea of framing success. You know, um, they, they give an example of uh, Pete Best, the drummer for the Beatles mm-hmm. um, versus, um, I don't remember the guitarist name, um, but, but it's like the guitarists, I think for deaf or the, the, and again, I'm probably screwing up this too, but like, it's one of the the founding members of Def Leppard, I think. Uh-huh. Um, like the, the way that they got to their places where they are, like, even though this was the founding member of Def Leppard and they were like, you know, multi-platinum award winning, they never felt like they were successful because they were the original guitarist from Metallica and got fired. Oh. Metallica was always bigger than them. So oh. it's like, oh, Dave Mustaine. Yes, that's it. Yeah, so what? what Megadeth. That was it. Yeah, that yeah. Was it. Again, I, again, I knew I was wrong with, with that. Right, right. But, but like, but like, you know, he never felt like he was successful because he was never as successful as Metallica was, yeah. even though he was successful by all metrics. And then right. Pete Best got fired from the Beatles, but like he ended up going to make a great life for himself, just doing other stuff and like, couldn't have been happier. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the, one of these things that like by all metrics, like, you know, he was way more, you know, successful on paper than Pete Best was, but Pete Best was a happier person because he, just decided, okay, cool. I'm doing something else. Yeah. You know? And uh, so, yeah, there were a lot of those things in the book that I really appreciated those uh, shifts in perspective for sure. For sure. All right. What's something uh, pop culture, it could be pop culture or obscure or something like that, but let's say you meet someone and they say, I like blank, whatever that is. And you immediately like, all right, we're good. What's that for you? Uh, Whiskey. Okay. Yeah. Whiskey. I mean, that's definitely like, I'm, I'm a whiskey nerd. Um, so enjoy, enjoy t- kind of talking about that stuff and kind of getting really into that. Um, yeah, that, that would definitely be it for sure. Um, obviously the music technology stuff, which is, you know, but like not you know, even outside of kind of our percussion world, like I like dorking out about those kind of things. Uh, again, I know that's not pop culture within that whiskey. No, that's good though. Yeah. Um, that's a good one. Yeah. Like it's, it's funny. Like for me, like, as I mentioned, like I'm a kind of list based person, yeah. like there's things like movies and like TV shows I like watching, but like I can barely remember titles of movies and actors uh, and things like that. Yeah. So like, it's one of those that I, I can watch it and talk generally about plot, but like, even if like, like I just finished Ozark, like if you asked me who the main characters were, I, I think I could give you the two, but like, that's probably about it. You know, I, I, but I, but I know everything that's happening. It's just, I don't really work that way. Same with, uh, with listening to songs. I don't hear song lyrics at all. Like mm-hmm. I never have. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, pe- people are sitting there going like, man, that's a really deep song. It's like, oh, sure. Uh, oh, you know. Um, yeah, the bass yeah, lines so, are quite good. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can sing you every little, you know, in, yeah. inner harmony part and things like that in yeah, terms yeah. of what's doing musically. But like just the words have never connected with me enough. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's, I, it's wild. That's a great point because it's wild how – when I'll teach students in class and there are some who are just like, I'm very lyric focused. And, and I would just yeah. think, and say, I'm kind of with you. Like I'm, I'm that that's never really been my thing. And it's yeah. just, and it's, it's a different way of listening. And it's similar to how there are people who are huge. Uh, I know like people who l- really love hip hop. That's kind of like the, the, the lyrics of the thing. 
and that that they're so tuned into that. And I'm always like yeah. paying attention to baseline, like all the, the, the instrumental side way the more orchestration of it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's a great point. All right. Uh, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to Bali? Definitely want to go to Bali. Um, I did, did some Gamelon study at UNT with Ed Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like, just learning about that, but also seeing how beautiful the, the country is and oh, yeah. how beautiful all that is. Like the, the idea of being able to combine a musical and tropical vacation at the same time, like I'm in, like, <laughs> you don't, you don't have to convince me twice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say Bali is definitely high on the list. Um, and, and, uh, and even a place like, like Puerto Rico or Cuba for, for the same kind of idea of like being able to go, go to a place that's gorgeous. Um, but also get some of those kind of, uh, I, I like going to places where I do things, you know, I'm not a big sit on the beach type of person. Um, as you can tell by the amount of things I do, I don't like sitting still for very long. Yeah. Um, and so I, to me, vacations are things that are, are ment- mentally, uh, stimulating, you know, uh, while also being gorgeous and, you know, all of that. So I like the combination of the two. Yeah. So have you, curiously, have you always been this kind of must be doing stuff, uh, jittery or whatever, however you want to phrase it? I'd say so. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say that I've, I've always been somebody who is finding the next thing to do or, or things like that. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's been ever been a time in my life where I was comfortable just like, man, I'm just going to hang out, you know, just like do the thing. Like that's just, you do not, you do not strike me as that kind of person at all. <laughs> no, no, that's not, you know, again, don't get me wrong. Like if I'm hanging with friends or things like that, like I absolutely love spending time doing that. The idea of like sitting around for a whole summer, just hanging out, like feels, Oh, that sounds so bad to me. You know, it's like, that sounds awful. Like, and that's not saying I want to go work, you know, like that's, that's not saying that for sure. But like, you know, if I, if I get the ability to go play a little bit, I get the ability to go, you know, kind of on a trip and go hiking. I get the ability, like this past summer, we did a uh, four day backpacking trip in uh, Aspen, Colorado. Um, And so like, like things like that, like there's something that kind of keeps me where like, there's, there's a challenge of like, well, like, especially with backpacking, I had done some when I was younger, but I hadn't done anything recently. So it was like, okay, cool. I need to do research on backpacks. I need to do research on, on, you know, sleeping bags. I need to do, so it's like gave me something to kind of mentally wrap my head around where I was able to kind of find things that I liked to do. Nice. So, and that was same with like over COVID, like when I got back into mountain biking and then now road biking, like researching bikes, researching, it's like, so even if I'm not actively going to do those things, I really enjoy that act of doing the research and finding things out and, um, and all that. Awesome. All right. What is your biggest kitchen mess up? <laughs> uh, well, I sliced my finger pretty good. Um, this was, this was years ago. This is maybe five, six years ago. Um, but yeah, I was just at home cooking, just, you know, I think slicing some cucumbers and my, my knife technique wasn't perfect. I'm actually, I'm actually, it slid off, right? Yeah. I just slid off. And like, I just kind of cut straight in, went, went pretty far down. Yeah. I still have a little bit of a scar there Mm -hmm. from a few years ago. Um, but yeah, so ended up getting pretty deep down, not, not all the way to the bone or anything, but, but pretty deep down. So ended up having to, uh, Actually, I think they glued it. I think it was one of those that they kind of like, they made it work mm. with glue. Um, yeah. But yeah, ended up having to go sit, get a test, tetanus shot, you know, kind of soak it in, in liquid. Because of course, you know, I think, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I was, I was getting vegetables, but still I was around like raw chicken and stuff like that. I like, didn't want oh, yeah. anything to get infected or anything like that. Um, 
And so, yeah, I think that's probably the worst. Um, I'm, I'm usually, again, with, I'm, I'm a pretty methodical person. So like with cooking, like actually, so this is a weird thing. Like I've, I'm pretty creative with things like arranging and things like that, but like, I hate being creative doing kitchen stuff. <laughs> like hate it. Like I, I love cooking, but yeah. I don't like being just, creative. The directions just give me. I want Yeah. And so like, I actually, I do those hello fresh things. Yeah. 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 I, I love that. I can like, you know, it's, it's something mentally engaging that I can spend like 30 minutes on mm-hmm. by the end of it. I have something delicious. And mm-hmm. all I had to do was just follow directions. Right. And like, I don't ever get to just follow directions. That's what I like. That's what I love about it is all of a sudden I just get to like, cool, I'm just going to do that. And then I'm going to be happy. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Sometimes I like having a little bit of structure um, and not feeling like I'm in charge of deciding everything. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's nice. That's good. That's good. That is the same reason. Uh, and, and also I, cause we, we had done, we've done like all of those different variations, but I think it was like when we started doing blue apron and it was like uh, salt, salt and pepper to season like every, and I'm like, Oh, that's what that's for. <laughs> like, I have no idea. Oh, that's how I need to be cooking is seasoning <laughs> every step, you know? Yeah. 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 yeah I, just, I agree. It's, it's made me a better cook too. I mean, like, yeah, I'm not saying that I want to just like go put some ingredients together, but if I had to, I, I think I understand enough just from going through that process a bunch. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. How all, all the things come together a little more, a little better, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. All right. A couple more strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you by far the best story I have of okay. my entire life, actually. <laughs> um, so this was playing with the Nashville symphony. Um, this, uh, like, like a lot of orchestras, when they get to Christmas time, they split into two orchestras. They go to Nutcracker and they have like a pops orchestra right, and yeah. they just kind of fill in with subs past that. Um, so, so Nashville only has two full-time percussionists, Sam Baco and Rich Graber. Sam's generally the kind of more drum focused person, Sam, uh, but Rich is normally the more keyboard focused person. And, um, so Sam, you know, hired me to play all the keyboard stuff for the pops orchestra for, for the, there was like a Jeff Tyzik Christmas pops kind of thing um and he said hey there's there's a good bit of keyboard notes in this but like it's all pretty manageable so uh you, you could you could kind of be in being rich for this concert and playing all the keyboard stuff it's like yeah that's, that's fine not a problem he's like well cool I'll, I'll get it to you like you know you know the two weeks before the gig whatever or actually but actually we get got the music a little late so i ended up getting like a week and a half before which was the tuesday i left for PASIC. um so like because we we would go up on tuesday to set up with Mm. Pearl. Um, and so like Tuesday morning, I picked up my music from the symphony hall. I kind of looked at it. It was like, Oh yeah, that that's, that one's pretty hard. This is blah, blah, blah. But but overall just keyboard notes. Um, so kind of put the folder away, didn't practice it. Like didn't, just didn't have time. Like put the folder away, finally got back from PASIC on Sunday, you know, exhausted, just so tired. The PASIC on the industry side is so exhausting. Um, but got back home. I was like, I got all those keyboard notes to learn. I got rehearsal on Wednesday. Like I got to, I got to, I got to start shred. So like Sunday, put the music up on the stand, shredded, you know, finally got to the point where like, you know, Tuesday night I could play at tempo. The, the, there was one part in particular was pretty hard. Um, and I could play it at tempo and feel pretty comfortable. Um, so Wednesday morning, go into rehearsal. Um, and the personnel manager walks up to me and says, uh, excuse me. Um, the conductor has just informed us that this, this piece is at the front of the stage. This is actually a xylophone concerto. Um, and, 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 and they're like, if, if, you know, because of union rules and all that kind of stuff, if you don't want to do this, like you don't, you don't have to do this. Like, like we'll, we'll cut the piece from the concert. And it was like, 
why not? So, yeah, so, so I ended up uh, accidentally being a soloist with the Nashville Symphony for five nights. Um, what, one rehearsal, but it was like that first concert was that night. So it was like, literally didn't even have a chance to mentally digest it. It was all right. of a sudden like, uh, okay. So yeah, it was like, it was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Rag, you know? Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I had no idea I was going to be playing a concerto. I definitely would have prepared a little differently if I knew it was a concerto. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably would have had it memorized and, you know, but it was, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was stressful. <laughs> But, but, you know, and, and I tell, tell my students that all the time, like, you know, I, I never before that day would have thought that I would have ever assumed that there could be an accidental percussion concerto, but it happened to me. So you should probably prepare like you're going to play it as a solo, you know? <laughs> and how did it go? It went, it went well overall. Like I would say that like the first three performances I was pretty happy with the fourth performance was a little, sh- again, like, because you know how like it's like that uncanny valley of like you know you're pretty prepared and then like you start to feel like you're prepared but then you get less prepared and then like all of a sudden it comes back to mm-hmm. like you get to that point where like that by that fourth night it was like i think this is gonna go okay and you know yeah, yeah. you just you know and, and so you, it, it's all fine but like you kind of have those flubs that you weren't expecting and those kind of things um but yeah no the, the personal manager came up to me after one night it's like you're you're crazy <laughs> it's like 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 <laughs> Why well, yeah, the way that you just like walked in is just like, all right, cool. You're playing a concerto. Have fun. It's like, you're playing it. Great. It's like, oh, thank awesome. you. Um, so yeah, so that, that was by far the weirdest performance situation I've ever been put in. That's good. That's really good. I like it. So. All right. Last question, Matt, one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently. I, I think this is a good one. So I, I'm a big video gamer as well. I do okay. enjoy playing video games and all that. Um, probably the the storyline that has affected me the most. Um, I'll, I'll have two answers because there's another one that's actually really good. Um, is uh, the Last of Us? It's a it's a game about a kind of post apocalyptic. Um, uh, uh, this this girl being kind of the primary character, um, be kind of this in this apocalyptic post-apocalyptic world um and she kind of finds this kind of father figure they're not they're not related but through this they kind of end up kind of navigating this thing whole to get whole thing together um and just the the it's incredibly powerful i, I won't i won't ruin it i mean it, it's a 10 you know 10 year old game at this point but um the way that that storyline evolves and all of a sudden you know he realizes that she she's the only way that this disease gets cured or whatever but the only way that it can get cured is if she dies and it turns into this weird but beautiful you know kind of resolution of that um yeah that was out of any any storytelling media that's by far the most powerful I think story that I've, I've experienced, uh, within that, um, in terms of, uh, kind of another medium, um, it's that's actually something on, it's on Apple TV right now, uh, called calls. Um, it's very artistically engaging. Um, it's, it's essentially an audio drama, uh, which is apparently a field that I I'm not very aware of, but is apparently a, a very popular field. Um, and uh, these these audio dramas generally are just podcast style things, uh, but this actually there's no um, video along with it, but it's all visuals of like the audio waveforms interacting between these two calls and all this kind of stuff the entire time. It is some of the most visually engaging media I've I've um, watched or or you know 
uh, taken in 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 the past 10 years or so. Um, Like, I'm not going to say that the story itself is like something like game changing or anything like that, but just the interaction of the voices and the waveforms and like how they all work. It's, it's absolutely stunning um, how they've done it. So yeah, I would definitely recommend checking out calls. So is this on, this is like, you watch it, but it's, it's actually, okay. Yeah. You, you do watch it. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's worth kind of pulling up a, like a little preview clip or something like that. It's just, it's, it's stunning because they don't do it the same way every time, every, every episode. And even, even it, it evolves throughout the episode of how these waveforms interact and how they work. And also, for example, if it's two people talking, you see these two interacting and all of a sudden the third person comes in and like, you see like the it pop into a triangle or pop into these, like it's oh. again, I'm, I'm not, not joking. It's the most visually stunning thing I've seen in a, in a long time uh, within that. So yeah, I would definitely check that out. One more. Oh, okay, um, good. Uh, Brad Meldow's taming the dragon. So it's a, it's a song by Brad Meldow. It's, it's, it's a combo of Mark Juliana and Brad Meldow. Um, but the cool thing is it's, it's like this guy telling a story, very, very matter of fact, um, you know, explaining almost, almost like you're explaining to like a therapist, what happened in a dream. It's not, it's not a very aggressive towards telling of it, but it's just, it's very compelling. Just the, the entire story is very compelling. Um, very interesting. And it's just, it's one of those things that's simultaneously odd and hip and new and, and old all at the same time. And those, those things are typically cool to me. So great to get a chance to talk to Matt about all of his work in the percussion field. It was a lot of fun. I very much look forward to getting to see him in the future and hopefully at the next PASIC, if not sooner. This week's rave is a review of NCPP 2022 that I alluded to in the opening segment. This was the first in-person version of this conference since 2019 and the first one I was able to attend since 2018, and I was very happy to do so. It was also my first time visiting the University of Memphis's campus, which was really, really pretty. Bill Schaltis and his entire studio at Memphis, as well as Josh Armstrong, did great work hosting, making sure we were fully stocked with drinks, coffee, and local donuts, and making sure all of the rooms and the concerts were well run. The program overall was well-organized with a healthy mix of performances and sessions of research and then discussion with breakout sessions involved throughout. The weather was very nice. I know we don't control that, but it was not too hot. It was mostly overcast and it didn't rain. So it was very pleasant to be outside. One of the best things about this conference that's been built in since its inception from the mind of my grad school mentor, Court McLaren, was to make this a smaller, more intimate place to allow for more individualized chatting and interaction and allowing everyone to contribute. The rooms are set up as large semicircles to allow for everyone to get that chance to chat and connect. And it was great to just meet some new folks as I do every time and reconnect with some old friends. I was particularly happy to get a chance to chat with an extended time with my grad school mentor, Court McLaren, along with my grad school colleague and friend, Nathan Daughtry. And we got to hear a wide array of good music from students and professionals on their concerts through 
discussions and sessions about IDE initiatives, creativity and teaching, percussion pedagogy and literature, and many other items. If you are interested, I fully support making a trip to the conference in 2023. It will be held May 21st through the 23rd on that year at what will be the brand new School of Music building on the campus of the University of Memphis. See you all then. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.